Hey, hey, Land Mavericks. This is Jaron Barnes. Welcome to the Land Maverick Podcast. In this episode, we have the honor and privilege of interviewing one of the greatest minds in all things land investing, Justin Sleva. This is an action-packed episode, my friends, so be ready to rock. Justin Sleva is truly an expert at what he does. We talk about really advanced land strategies where he's literally getting exotic animals to be released on particular properties so that it can increase the hunting appeal and value. I mean, the stuff that he's doing is like next level. So I really love this episode. I love this conversation. I think you will too. The Land Maverick Podcast. Everything you need to know to crush it in land investing. So with that, Justin, welcome to the show. Justin, I got to be honest, man. You are in land, one of the key people that I just want to grab a beer with and hang out with. <laughs> What's that? I watch your Facebook stuff and your social posts. And it's like, I mean, of course, it's, you know, I'm sure you have your own set of problems like everybody else, but you just look like you have an awesome life and I'm just like super fun to be around all the time. Uh, well, I appreciate that. Yeah, we all have our ups and downs. I don't use social as a, a platform for casual Fridays or land niche stuff. Most of my friends don't really know what I do. They know I real estate invest in some way, but I do that to be more promotion of dad and husband and friend, if you will. So, you know, and we all go through the cyclical things. I think median age, y'all are early 30s. Okay, mid 30s, early 30s. So, five, seven, 10 years, a little bit age difference. And so about the age when I was 34, 35, 36, I went full-time in the land. And then we started noticing, you know, that was a very, it was, it was a culture shock to me because I worked corporate America, worked my butt off. And, and I was, I don't want to say I was self-absorbed with cr- climbing the ladder, but it was like whatever it took to get to the next step. And then all of a sudden that whole identity was taken away and I had to like rebuild that. And so it was a, it's a blessing and a curse at the same time because you go through that that whole metamorphosis of who I am and I and I visualize days of sitting at the pool like this was how how weird it was for me so I'm I lose my job I got a year's you know money just kind of as a, a severance and I'm sitting by my pool thinking how much of a loser I am because I don't have a car I don't have a job but I'm you know worth at the time probably seven hundred fifty thousand bucks and I'm in a half million dollar house sitting next to a pool crying to myself that's and I'm like what are you talking about you have a great life. You have good work ethic. You can do that. So then I just went full-time in land at that point. So, But at the same time, you start noticing your friends and your groups and your family and everything starts to shift a little bit because you you aren't that same person anymore. Now either you're more available and you're trying to find out who you are. So your expectations with those around you kind of change. And so that comes with both that comes with both surprise of finding people that maybe were in your life this whole time that you just didn't put it, you didn't, you didn't water enough. And those that you have been watering into that just weren't there when you needed it, and so it's a it's a weird dichotomy. It's a, the, the shift in your life changes really fast, and, and so for me, what I have found is the posts you see; those are all genuine posts with the kids and the wife. And we go to pumpkin patches, we go to the winery, we we find these things that we can do that are family friendly. And I still try to date my wife, and so I try to have this life of if I could build the perfect life for me, what would it be? And that's pro dad, pro husband, pro you know friend, and put that out there. I really love that, man. I'm going to steal something that Drew did with Clint Turner. He okay. asked a really awesome question that I think we're going to start asking a lot of guests. Okay. So the question is, what 
does a bad day look like for you? So like if you if you're not on your A game, what are the the signs or signals and what does that mean? Did I answer the, did I ask the question right, Drew? I feel like I butchered it. So the context, Justin, and you're actually one of the least I feel like you're one of the most relatable people that I follow. But a lot of these guests we bring on, they're very high performing people, including yourself. And it's easy as a listener to think that you can't relate to them because they are cut from a different fabric, right? Maybe they're born with wealth. Maybe they're born really smart. Whatever it is, we all find excuses to not be able to relate to that person. And so the context is, you know, was there a time in the past 10 years where you didn't feel like a winner, where you felt like a loser and you looked at yourself in the mirror and you really felt like a failure and also part B is what does a bad day for Justin look like nowadays? Man. So I told you the moment that was seven years ago that I felt like a loser as I'm sitting there next to the pool. Cause I, I just had my identity stripped. Like I worked from the time I was 21 to 35, I was in the rail industry and I had worked up from the, being a conductor outside in the snow, the rain, the sleet up to a chief operating officer where I'm the, if it, t- if the train touched it, the train had actually movement of the train touched it. I was in charge of, and I was seeing best ever performance numbers. And then all of a sudden it's gone. My identity was shredded. And then I'm worried about how am I going to take care of my kids, my wife. And you know, that you go back and you unpack some of that and it becomes, well, why was I scared of that? The thing for me was, is I I worked so hard because I never felt smart enough because I didn't get to graduate college. I went to work at the railroad. I started doing that. So I was taking classes while I was on the train. And so I, I got to a point where I was so high that the degree didn't really help me anymore. Because, you know, I'm this, I've got this background. So, and then that's gone. And so now I'm sitting there thinking that. And then in relation to what a bad day looks like for me, I think it comes, when you first asked that question, my, my initial knee jerk response was, I don't have bad days. I have bad moments. And I think that is, is true. But then I wanted to think about, well, have I ever had a couple days? And I'm trying to think in the last three months, have I had a couple days that were just really heavy? And I think for me is when I when I try launching something new, like we just we're, we just launched the second offering. It just actually sold out the second offering with Pasture Holdings, our SEC fund. Anytime that I throw into that, and I seem to go through the cycle of I put in a bunch of work onto something, and I'm not. I, I think it's going to work. You're probably going through this right now with your launch. You you lock yourself in the closet. You bust your butt for days, and you're sitting there and you're going, "Man, I am so overwhelmed." And then it takes just something a little outside, like an outside force, like the kids get sick. The soccer team is not doing something right. Your wife is mad and you just don't understand why she's upset with you because all you're trying to do is provide and do better and, and work hard. What I have found for me is I look for, you know, you see to read the book. If you if you have to go through this with your, your wives and everything, you're going to read the book called Love and Respect. If you haven't read it yet, it's very to read because it talks about the man's fed off respect. And people ask me if I want to be like uber wealthy. And it's the question, the answer to that is no, but I want people to respect what I've done for them and what I've done in life. To me, that success comes for if uh, I pass away, somebody tells my kids at the funeral that their dad changed their life. So a bad day for me is when I see multiple disrespects or lack of care when I've poured into something. And then I notice that weighs on me really heavy. So to get out of that funk, I start doing some really random stuff. And, and if, I don't, if I don't address it quick enough, I'll notice my mental health. I'll, I'll get real tired and I'll want to go to bed at 7.30, 8 o'clock after I put the kids down. I'll notice that I get short with people, meaning that like, uh, you know, I don't have the typical empathy or patience that I normally have. 
So what I do to get out of that is I try to do random acts of kindness for people that have no idea who I am. So there's a couple charities I'll give to, or I'll go to a restaurant, sit and eat by myself, and then buy a couple older couples that don't know who I am, lunch or breakfast. And I say it's from a family friend, watched them walk into the the restaurant or their grandkids. If it's a grandparent, I could tell their grandparents. And so that I can walk out and I figured that changes the energy around me just enough to get me out of that. So I've gotten pretty good at noticing that, but a, a bad day is one of those where I can start to see that the stress or the lack of feeling like I'm being heard or being respected or being listened to, it starts to weigh on me or appreciation is that doesn't feel there. So that's where I get that, that bad day. So I call it a bad moment because I can usually work around it. But when some there's some days it just piles on and it could be a partnership that's got rough or it could be a couple deals fell apart. It could be something that has to do between me and my wife or me and the kids or, you know, whatever that may be. And you say when you look at social media, we we see the highlight reels and we see we hear that we talked about this on our podcast for Friday was the smoke show. You see the seven figure deal being done, seven figure deal. So you're looking at yourself as an entrepreneur and you feel like you don't really get to compare to that. And you don't really know what all took place behind the scenes, how much of it's 100% real or what that looks like. So I guess that's a long-winded way to say, you know, those days I don't really say are bad days. There's just bad moments that are fed in by certain things that don't jive with the way my brain works. Yeah, man, that's a lot of self-awareness. I'm sure it took you a while to figure that out, but I love it. Oh yeah. It's (laughs) working on it daily, working on it daily. I haven't heard that in a while because so in college, I was I was about to marry this girl, and then we we ended up breaking up, and I was crushed, and I was in this funk and depression, and considering you know harming myself, and all these horrible thoughts go through your head. And what helped me get out of that funk was actually serving others, and actually you go to a homeless ministry or you go to a soup kitchen and you serve, and I found that got me out of the funk. And you do that in micro ways currently. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I do that microwave currently, but you'll if I notice it's business related, I may call a guy that I may not even coach him. I see him posting stuff on Facebook and I really like what they have to say, but I can tell they're struggling in their business. I may call him and say, Hey, let's look at your business real quick. It's not a cost, you know, it's a, there's there's been several guys that I've noticed something been off on our energy and, and they're just Facebook friends. And you know, we may have them, you know, hey, call me every Monday at 1030. Let's get your business launched off, or do it to a stranger thing. Or if I go to like the the charity I really like to give to is the TK Ranch. They have no idea who I am, but I send them quite a bit of money through PayPal. I used to send them half the money that came from my book sales. Like they just got it every month when I got my thing and I just cut them a check. And they finally called and reached out and asked who I was. They said, why do you keep sending us money? And I said, well, the, the, you're called the TK Ranch. And they go, yeah. So that's Terry and Keith. And she goes, yeah. How do you know that? And I said, well, my grandma, adopted grandma, she's not really my grandma. I call her my grandma. She founded the place in 1981. You've never met me. I've been on this place I've, since I was little. I would go walk on the ranch. They're my uncles. I'm putting air quotes because they're not really uncles. They were a step uncle at some time. And she's like, holy crap. And so, and I'd always put, tell Terry and Keith, I said, hi. And they knew who I was when they say my name, but the, the people at the, the church that, that runs it had no clue that's who I was. And so the microwaves of that, yes, it's, it's easy to say the microwaves, but it's one of those things for me that I think we're all energetic beings and we're all interconnected in some way. And if we can create positive energy around us, you, you talk about karma or getting the ball rolling a certain way, we can, we can create that too by doing that. You just can't do it with the expectation you're going to get something back other than the idea of giving away. You know, it is something, it's hard to put your finger on it. It's hard to articulate, but there is something to 
like managing the energy around what you do in your life and business. And if you find yourself in a funk, doing stuff to shift the energy is like, I know like energy sounds like a woo woo word. I don't know. Again, I don't know exactly how to articulate it, but like I can speak to my relationship with Drew. There's a synergy. There's a energy on our relationship that has blown up into success. Like him being the funder for our, you know, I buy land and, and also for land Maverick society. It just, it, there's a, a weirdness to what we got going on. Like there's just a grace or, you know, again, it's hard to find words for it, but I think if you know, like, I'm pretty intentional in my like private life to like, want to make sure that that energy doesn't like get messed with because it's something like spiritual or something that's like beyond logic or numbers or what have you. And so I really like what you highlighted here, man, because if you're ever in a funk or you're having a bad moment, there are ways where you can, through taking radical action, really shift the energy around your life and circumstance. So I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. I, I, if you said woo-woo and it made me think of one of the practices I started doing as a late, and, it, and I saw a study on it, so it makes sense to me, but it's called earthing or grounding. And you think about- I've heard about that. Okay. So how many people, if, and, I want, and I want your listeners to do this too, like think about the last time you actually walked on the, on the earth barefoot, or you sat and had both hands and your feet barefoot, skin touching. I'm not saying you had to be naked. I'm just saying good contact on the earth. And you think about the few times that you do it naturally, you go on vacation, you go to the beach. So you take your shoes off and you walk on the beach. Ideally, if you think about humans throughout the time, they, they didn't have shoes. They didn't have these things blocking their attachment to the earth. And so what my wife starts laughing, she goes, what are you doing? And so if it's, if as long as it's not wet and rainy outside, I'll go outside in the morning and I walk around our backyard barefoot. And, you know, it's just a small slice of what they used to back in the day, but it's still 10 times what people do today. And she goes, I said, I'm just getting rid of the negative energy today, just discharging the negativity off me. And it sounds woo woo. And I, maybe it's real and maybe not, but I've never been upset on vacation at the beach when I've been touching the earth all that time. I do know that I feel better when I've walked around a little bit barefoot or touching the ground. And so, you know, when I was younger, the way I grew up, you'd hear, I can hear my stepdad, all oh, that hippie shit, God dang. you know, like, nah, maybe there's something to some of the hippie stuff that's out there or the Eastern philosophies that we just kind of neglected. They've been around longer than a lot of the stuff we've, we've have here in, in Cowboyville in the West, you know? You know, Buck Rizvi and I went to Ireland. Jaron was supposed to go. He had he had to change his plans. But we, you know, there's green grass all over that whole island. And we would take our shoes off. And when you lay down and it's 70 and sunny, you strangely get really tired and you fall asleep. And it's it's almost like your body needed that because you're supposed to do it every day. But we, we ended up doing it like once a year. So I'm on board with that. And I know Jaron is, Jaron, you've heard of that before too, right? grounding. Yep, I have. Yeah, I'm, I spent half my life in California, you know. <laughs> I got a lot of hippies in, in my... It got, a lot of, got a little surfer dude in me. <laughs> Justin, I wanted to ask you about your fund because I've ran the numbers so many different ways because we do a ton of volume through I Buy Land, at least what I would think is a lot of volume. And also Land Maverick Society, I think we've done close to 6 million top line revenue this year for both of those projects. And a fund sounds tempting for me because it's easier access to cash. But when I run the numbers, it's long-term the most expensive way to source capital. 
Am I right when I think about it that way? Or is there something I'm missing? Because by default, you're losing 50% of the profit to the passive investors, right? Yeah, depending how you structure it. Yeah. So I think you're wrong in what you're missing because how you set up your rate for the fund is going to be... So Here, here's the biggest thing we've had an issue with is getting outside of the land sphere. So if I say, hey, I'm going to fund a deal as a land investor, I, and in this plum I've had since 2018, and we are 50-50... If you get a deal and your money in and money out in 45 days, I, I'll give you 60-40. But that's the standard rate. I mean, that's it's great for me as a funder. It's, it's really great. And so that expectation when people give money, they think that they're going to get this big rate. With the fund, you're setting up uh, almost an instant bank that you're not leveraging against. So for us, like our, we have a note fund that's we've bought in $400,000. We've paid $400,000 for about mid $600,000 in paper. That's got interest attached at like a seventeen to twenty percent yield, just for rough math. I think it's I think lifetime value is worth about eight hundred and something thousand dollars. So if we're arbitraging against that, and I've got it, I'm paying out a ten pref. I've got the the arbitrage there, so I've got that margin there. So it's and that's it's cheap. I don't have to go to the bank and get the the appraisal done. I don't have to have the fresh surveys on it. I just need to know that I've got the paper promissory note signed to me, and then I can arbitrage that. So that's the easy piece. So. We have our second offering. We just sold out and it was a $250,000 raise. The property was 37.4 acres. We put water power, splitting it into thirds and we're selling it for, we're listing it at $14,000 an acre. I underwrote it and the pitch deck shows 10.5 an acre. Broker opinion going back out is at 14. And then we're offering owner financing on that, which will move to the note fund. So I'm able to do some things inside that. That one pays a 10% pref. So they get 10% off the top paid quarterly. And then they get a 15% equity kick at the end. So instead of giving up 50%, we're giving up the 10 pref, which the bank rates right now are nine and a quarter, nine and a half. So instead of the bank getting the money and us taking leverage out, I have zero capital into it. This one I'm using it because we do a full cash raise. There's no 20% down. So I have zero capital into it and I'm paying the same rate effectively that I would have paid the bank. And so it keeps me basically even with that. Now, that may change as time goes because, again, as we break out of the land sphere for us, people in the land sphere are greedy. And it's not, that's not a bad thing. That's because we're used to, you know, yeah, I mean, we, you know, we've done multi-million dollar deals. We'd so, and I don't want to sound like the typical guru, multi-million dollar deals. Bond Road Ranch, I'll use that one, for instance. We paid 3.4. We had like 198% cash on cash return using leverage, and we did that in four months. You take, you give an equity partner that kind of return and you take your 15% management or 30% management, whatever your number is in there, and they still get that kind of return. They're hooked to that. They want that kind of return. And so I said, Hey, I got a 10 plus a 15 equity kick. They're not super into, but you take a dentist in Nebraska and he's heard about doing land. And he says, man, I, my money market guy made 8% last year. You're going to guarantee me 10 plus I get a back end ride with that. It gets something to talk about at the dentist commission. Dude, I'm doing this land investing thing. We kind of, you know, get to do that. So I say all that for us is that getting outside of the land sphere, the money is cheaper. And so the idea for us is how do we get cheaper, faster capital? Um, that while wow, you funded y'all your deals, right? There's always a point, and you've probably had this, you have so many good deals in front of you, you start looking, how can I get more capital cheaper than you're going to arbitrage it internally? Drew does that, you know? And so me with Plum, you know, if I, shoot, I've gotten $500,000 of deals at once and I've got some money on the market, but it's going to close. And so I'm having to shuffle around 
to make it work, you know, and then you get this half million dollar deal you hit and you go, well, that's a little bit bigger than I needed, but it's too good to pass up. And so we're doing that anyways. But the idea behind the fund for us is cheaper, faster capital with the subdivides, but having the ability to, uh, to be, basically be the bank. And I told, I don't remember if I told y'all in the interview last time, but for me, my five-year look was to own the bank. I want to be the guy that everybody comes to and has that. And I, I thought the natural progression of private money lender to fund was easier than private money lender to bank regulation. So, you know, I, I think that if we can build this up to a point, we can have a bank absorb us or buy us, or we sell to another capital group. And that's kind of the intent behind that is, is what that exit looks like. So the gist of it is, is that the numbers do make sense if you source your capital from outside of the land sphere. Okay. Because I am learning that. I'm learning that right now, how to, how to raise capital outside the land business. I can do it inside the land business with a few phone calls. It's easy. Outside is much harder. There's a huge education process, right? And so I'm learning that right now. I'm excited to, to get more involved. But sounds like, I keep telling you this, Justin, sounds like you guys are consistently about five to 10 years ahead of us. And we're just excited. I've never met Adam. I've, I've heard his voice multiple times on the podcast. Just excited to be a fly on the wall and see what you guys are up to. Yeah, it's it's funny. We've kind of, over the last year, we've kind of drifted in some of our thought processes and where we want to go. And that's not a bad thing. I think it, you talk about y'all two having a synergy. And me and Adam have known each other. We've been friends for 25 plus years. And that doesn't take away from our friendship. But we have gotten into different seasons in our life as well. You know, he just got married. He has a stepdaughter that's 17 now and a stepdaughter's 10, where I have younger kids and I've been married for, shoot, we've been together 22 years. So 17 years married. So as you see these things happen, you know, he's got projects that he's wanted to run down and I have certain projects that I want to run down. So as we kind of move through this and navigate through the life, you know, we still have casual Fridays. We still, we talk, you know, in the office three days a week, four days a week, we talk daily, but you were in the office three days a week together. But there is a, you know, what that looks like for me is I'm, I'm honing in what my five year looks like, my 10 year. And I tell people I don't have a money like, goal to get to. I tell people my youngest son is five and I can't go live the life whatever until he's out of high school and into college. And so I have 12 years and I'm going to continue to just keep doing what I'm doing, growing on the different levels of what we have. I got asked a question in a, a mastermind on Monday. I visited with some guys there. It wasn't my mastermind that I got invited to go speak or you know, kind of get into their normal groove. I mean, the question was, where do I see us going in five years? Like, Where do I see the next thing for land being, whether it's, uh, you know, niche or subdivides or forced appreciation entitlement plays. And I think that it comes down to the cheaper, faster capital, which we're talking about with the fund, and then getting very specific in your niche on what you do really well, meaning forced appreciation entitlements or going ground up. And I think that we have to create the majority of your listeners probably buy and sell a recreational land. And we we're selling a dream but the dream we're offering, I, I got my hands really wide right now. We've got to start to hone it into what our buyers really want and get better at doing that. And maybe that's having, you know, you get these things in the mail that says $149,900 for five acres in a barn dough. And it's got a pretty picture on it. And they're doing these subdivides and they're selling that. Well, that's that person has gotten to a package there that they're arbitraging inside or they're doing multiple deals inside of that one deal. Whether they're selling it, they're, they're marking up a barn dough shell They're getting owner finance, so they're getting interest on that one. So they're the bank on that. Plus, they made an arbitrage against the deal that they actually did. And so we're seeing those pieces happen. So for me, I'm looking at every part inside of one deal, one purchase 
agreement back, how many times can I make money inside of that different directions? And then I think five years from now, we're going to have to be really good at what the product we're ending up. Speaking of that, you sent me a few weeks ago, Justin, you sent me a, like a video of you guys releasing exotic deer. Can you talk about that? I want to, I want to know how much they cost and then how much the value. (laughs) Yeah. The Oryx. Okay. So we, that's actually getting shown right now. And so that, that, that ranch, so uh, I'm trying to say how to word this because I don't want it to come off negative. It's not negative anyway. So in this is we're a year and a half into this project. So it was April of 22. We bought this ranch just south of just south of me. It's like 40 minutes, 45 minutes from me. It's beautiful. It's called Rock Ridge Ranch. And you'll see me post pictures of my kids out there. I'm just like, oh, we're at the feeders working. This is this ranch. It is beautiful. 258 acres, top into hill country. We paid 2.4 ish million for it. Uh, the idea was to cut it up for 10 to 30 acre tracks. We looked at the subdivide checklist. Everything looked good. We, all the, uh, the road was at width. We were going to put a fresh coat of uh, dirt, or I say caliche down just to, to make it a little bit nicer. Started getting the plat, get, did the subdivide checklist. During the process, we had two different groups make full offers, go under contract. They do 60 day periods. It falls out. We were okay to make quick money. And I'm telling you the backstory so you understand where, where I'm going with that. So we go through two, we go through about six months of that, say, forget it, just run through the subdivide checklist or just run through the platting process. Well, they changed the plat, the subdivide checklist when we go to turn it in, they kick it back, said, Hey, we need you to check this and this. We said, okay, great. We go back, turn it in. Hey, sorry, you missed the cutoff for this week. We were busy. We're going to do it next week. They hand it back to us again in a third time and say, Hey, you got to do this thing now because we changed the subdivide checklist again. So they changed it on us three times. The third time they deemed us a residential area and we're like, TECQ doesn't require any of this over 10 acres. They say, yeah, but we're going to, we think they're going to in a couple of years. So we just want to make sure it's good. Well, that involved getting five wells drilled, a hydrologist report. That was 150 grand to do that. We already had a well on a property. We had power on a property. Then they wanted us to make a road, what we were going to call a private road behind a gate that we had a motorized gate for everybody. They wanted it built for 50,000 passengers a year. So basically a small highway. That was going to, it took our road cost from 50 grand up to about $340,000. So we said, Hey, we're going to have to re- decide what we're going to do. We cleaned up the property some. I had a bluff cleaned up because I was keeping 50 acres of this for myself. I was going to build my little weekend dream like ranch because I wanted to go ground up of the place and build something that I thought would just be amazing. And so it's got three acre bluff. It overlooks, it's got 300 degree view of hill country. You can see as far as you can see, it's beautiful. Best view in Texas for sale right now. We, uh, cleaned it up. And part of our plan is like, okay, our, our contingency was we need to make this what some person, aka rich guy out of Dallas, Fort Worth, it's 45 minutes away, what he's going to want. So the idea was, is let's put some breeding pairs on it. We have a herd of Audad on there. It's high fenced on three sides. We have great whitetail. So we have on camera, 10, 12 point whitetail. We've got probably seven or eight different bucks. Uh, Audad, we have Three shooters that if you went to an exotic game ranch, they would cost you about $5,000 to take. They're just big, old, beautiful Audad. They stink. They just look like these just prehistoric goats. And then we bought some Oryx. Oryx are a big, like, white, tall goat with a long horn. I posted them on some of our socials, but they're just this beautiful thing. And we bought breeding pairs. And so the idea is that – and we bought some black buck as well. Black buck are the little – they're like a darker white tail, kind of got a moose face, but they have little curly Q horns. And we've bought uh, one buck and two does to go with him. So we've got breeding pairs of those. We've got breeding pairs of you got. We've got pictures of the whitetail that are coming in. They're staying on a place with their little baby fawns. And so we have like four 
different animal types that we have that are breeding on our place. And the idea behind that is, well, we've got breeding pairs of this exotics. So all you got to do is put the house where you want it. And it, we're, we're listed at a reasonable price, but it's actually being shown today. So cost of the, uh, the two Oryx and the three black bucks, one of those being a buck and two being doe, costs 7500 bucks to add that on. So not a horrible price. Those are low fence exotics, meaning if you don't go chase them on your four-wheeler, they will never jump your four-strand barbed wire fence. We have goat a strand on it, and then we have a couple, two lines on top. So, so goat netting and then two barbed wire strings on top. They won't leave. They'll stay there. And so when you pull up, both of those are really curious animals. So when you pull up, they walk out into the open and they look at you. So imagine, think about the dream. Like we just talked about bringing that dream in. I got a guy comes out of Fort Worth. He's got his wife. They walk up and they see these beautiful white looking things from Africa with these long horns, white with this brown muzzle. And they're just staring at you big eyed. And right now we have a lot of what they call broom weed. So it has a pretty yellow flower. It's not a great plant for your food, for your, for your actual grass, but it's really proud. So you got this big white exotic looking animal, this yellow flower, just kind of gazing through it. And then you see a herd of Audad walk through your pipeline and you're sitting up on this hill and the trees are starting to change color and you got the sun kind of gleaming down. And then we put a herd of cows on there. We put 21 cows out there. And so you see them kind of off in the distance moving. Now this guy's just thinking, man, I get to be a weekend cowboy or I get to be a weekend exotic ranch owner. And the idea is just the marketing piece of it. It's not because we really think they're going to create these massive herds of exotics. But if I tell you I have breeding pair of oryx out there and breeding pair of black buck and I have a herd of Audad and I have a nice stock of whitetail, you now are invested in what the sign on the top of the ranch says. It says Rock Ridge Ranch and you have a picture of deer, cow, turkey, and it's all on that metal thing. It sells the the sells the two point eight million dollar list price for you. So, like, that's the worst that would happen is you buy something for two point four, you have a very frustrating experience for eighteen months, learn a lot of lessons, and you still exit and make some money. So, yes, but the holding cost. So, the good thing about this place, full price offer, we make money. Yeah, we we do make money. If we take a about a two hundred thousand dollar haircut on the price, we break even. But there is some other contingency in there. Again, we talk about deal as a whole and where your other levers are to make money. The good thing is, is we got this loan at like, I, it's either, I got to look, but it's, I think it's 4%. It's either 3.75 or 4.25. So I'm going to call it 4%. So you don't mark my words on it, but we had it made assumable. So that $2.8 million buyers qualified, he can come take over our $1.8 million loan at 4%. And then we've offered to Terry a second for them if they need that on the equity which we know the product and we can charge, hey, current prime plus one on that. If you don't want to bring the cash, now we make 10% on our money that's invested in there as well. So again, we have some ways to, to help protect ourselves, but we also have some good things. And like me talking to the um, the agent that's brought his clients to come look at it, he's with my broker down there, but I was telling him, I explained the, the uh, assumable loan, that saves them $250,000 over the three and a half year span compared to prime today. So- that's that's huge for them. Is there any way to do like helicopter tours or something? I'm just trying to think. <laughs> that one's kind of small for that. It's some of our stuff out in Sutton County that was, you know, we got one right now, Mule Creek Ranch. Uh, I do a Trevor. Uh, we're, we're, we've got, I think, 11 investors in there. And it's uh, 1,218 acres. That one's pretty good size. We sold four of the 11 tracks on it. So that one's done really well so far. We had some out in Sutton County that was, that was that's in Carlsbad. 
Texas, which is just out of uh, it's Tom Green County. But we did Sutton County. We had two out there and combined between the three deals. He did one deal with his family and then did, we did two deals with him as our agent out there. Between those three tracks, we were close to 8,000, uh, 7,500 acres. And so, I mean, it's just big, big chunks of land. And I, I'll never forget, we, we were looking at it. We were up on top of this bluff and we're in the side by side and we're, we're looking out on it. And he, I said, man, how far is our fence line? He's like, as far as we can see. And I just felt like it was like a total Lion King moment, you know, like it's <laughs> everything the light touches is yours. You can actually, you can get lost and like dive dehydration that parcel's so big. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Four square miles. Think about that. Like four or five square miles. And the two together were, you know, even bigger. They were, they were six. So it was close to 10 square miles between two of the tracks because they were contiguous. So, I mean, you think about that for a second. Like when you buy your first tax deed property from the state of Arkansas and it's a quarter acre in, in some small town in, in Arkansas, and then a couple years later, you're buying 10 square miles of land. You know, we all dream about it, but what's stopping you from doing it other than the confidence, the know-how and continually taking those steps to get there? I'm kind of in the predicament, guys, with my questions because I have a pressing question related to the topic on funding and like setting up a fund, but I don't feel like that's a very good segue because my second question would be a much better direction to go. So if conversation circle backs to the funding, I have a question for you. But I think it, based on where you're, what you were just sharing there, how do you get the confidence to do those type of deals? How do you get, like even maybe peel back your own personal story and evolution in the land business, how do you get to the the stage where you're doing these type of, you know, large tracks, doing improvements, doing subdivides, entitlements, and, and everything that you're, you know, head deep into these days? I mean, for somebody in the audience right now, who's just trying to figure out how to run comps, like, how do they get from where they're at today? And in an actual feasible, like reasonable timeframe, not like, 20 years from now, but like in the next five years, how do I become Justin in five years from now? <laughs> the, uh, well, I'm, I'm going to say this and it's not, this is not pointed at anybody directly. I think that we have watched so many coaches and internet superstars try to make things more complicated than they really are. When you learn to comp, you look for a like kind of property at the same, that's in the same general area that has kind of the same features. And then that doesn't change whether it's a 1200 acre ranch or a five acre property. And you're looking for a like kind property to get the comps. And so when I say that is there's not anything really different in the deal. And you hear this all the time, bigger deals are easier than smaller deals. And that's true, but there's, there's nothing different in, you know, the, the core basics of what you need. So if I'm going to buy a big, a bigger track, a, you're going to want some partners that you kind of your first couple of times so you can build the confidence. But to be a good operator in your land business, you need to know how to see if like what the comps are, what is it worth, and we want to be able to buy it for less and then sell it for more. That's oversimplification of land investing at its finest. Buy for less, sell it for more than it's worth. Now, there's a couple of things that can get you in trouble, and this is all the same in everything. Is probably needs access to water, the ability to have water. Um, especially on bigger stuff that you want people to eat or, or smaller stuff that you want people to live on are going to have that. You want to know where electricity is. You got to make sure you can legally get on the property. I even add in the step that you can legally and physically get on the property. And that those, those core things like that, they transfer, they, they, they transfer from the half acre property in Arkansas that you bought off the coastal website to the, the 2,500 acre ranch. Now there are different 
things that you have to watch out for on each one of those, but it's, it's taking the steps and continually trying to get better. And I, I almost went to the, I'm probably Dave Dennison always jokes with me because I always tell him I'm, I'm so dumb at this. When I talk to everybody else, they're so much smarter. And he says, Oh, you're not dumb at it. But I, I go into stuff that everything can be figured out because it's been done before. It's like having a good title company. It's why I got away from self-closing so quick is because I knew I could go to a title company and they would know whether it was title or not because they're giving me insurance. They've bet on it and it cost me X amount. So now the deal has to make sense to cover that. A broker in the area probably has better knowledge of the area than I do, especially if I'm buying from Fort Worth and they're in Oklahoma or they're in East Texas and I've never been to the town. They probably know different people than I do. And, and I'll, a, a point in that is like I, that subdivide I'm doing in Sulphur Springs, it's an off, the, one of the second offering for a fund. The agent I'm using there, she's on the water board and she knows the guy at the, the electric company that's going to drop the pole over for me. And so she calls me back. She goes, you have water and power. And I said, yeah, I talked to them. They're going to give me, they've, they've okayed the water. It's going to be 20 grand. I just got to give them the go. She goes, okay, cool. Uh, she goes, that's what they told me to just go ahead and call and tell them good. She goes, I'll call the power guy. He'll drop three poles for you. Uh, you okay with spending the money on three poles? And I said, yeah, but if you can only get one and we have to run it, I'm okay with that too. She's like, okay, don't worry about it. I know him. He'll do it for me. And we just got to sign this easement. So, you know, you go through deals, you do the repetitions enough, it becomes second nature, but to get there, you have to start trying to do those repetitions. And if you were to try to do it faster, you should work with an operator that understands that. And that's why for me with Plum, it's and this is not to knock any other deal funder. It's just when you work with a deal funder, if you're not sure and he's willing to put the money into it and kind of coach you a little bit along the way, he has a vested interest in that. And that's how you tend to get better. And you're like, I gave away 50% of the deal. But yeah, you got my person in Oklahoma. You got my agent, my title company, my surveyor, my tractor guy. And it cost you, it, you, you gave away 50% and I put all the money up. All you did was bring the deal. And so there's a vested interest for your, the right operator for you. So my question on that though, especially when it comes to development, I 100% amen everything you just said. I thought it was beautiful and amazing. But when you are starting to dip your toe into like developing roads or having to, even talking about utilities, even knowing where to start, like, do I contact, you know, a civil engineer that is like listed with the county? Do I, what, where do I go? Like, I mean, I understand rolling up your sleeves and just, I mean, I think the ultimate answer is just roll up your sleeves and try stuff and get in the trenches and make mistakes and learn as you go. The fear is though, for a lot of people is that in the pursuit of that, because the dollar amounts of things are so much higher, even in terms of earnest money, if you're wrong or you make a mistake, it's a lot more costly and might you know wipe people out from even being able to do the business if if they make the wrong mistake, right? So, how would what would you speak to that? Like, how would you speak to? Let's say I'm somebody who's listening to you right now, and I'm like, I want to do more, you know, development stuff or big, you know, 500 acre track and start doing these things, but I don't, you know, that just scares me. Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a great question. And there's going to be, if you were to ask like, hey, do I do this or this? I would say yes, just a, a blanket yes, which would, wouldn't make any sense here. But every market has different nuances that needs to be done. So, and, I, and I'm going to step back even farther than that. When you say development, are you saying, hey, I want to build quarter acre lots that J, that John Houston Homes or DR Horton's going to build on? Or are you saying, hey, I want to build ranchettes that are 10 acres? Or are you saying, hey, I want to do a simple subdivide, but I want to make sure everything has power and water. And so there's so many different facets in that. 
And that's why I think so many people get scared with it because you look at this, the word development in itself. Am I doing entitlement? Yes, light entitlement. Am I doing some development? Yeah, we're putting in driveways and dirt roads and gates and fencing, power and, and water. But when I hear development, I think I'm taking this cornfield that's down the street from me and I'm going to put a mixed use parking lot. It's going to have commercial at the bottom, townhouses, townhouses on top, may have a 24 hour fitness. I think development in that terms. So for me, I think it's it's distinguishing what you're going to do. Because if I were going to do that, I have an engineer involved. If I'm going to build the the mixed use complex, I'm using an engineer. If I'm just going to take this, like we just put an offer in on an 80 acre today that was on market, uh, it had been burned and been timbered. It's just kind of ugly, but we can clean it up because we have full-time tractor. We'll put in gates and we'll put in, it's got, it doesn't have water, but we'll get wells drilled for eight. We'll turn 80 acres into eight, 10 acre tracks. Our offer is 2,500 bucks an acre. We'll sell them for $5,000 an acre on owner finance, but no problem. And so that's, that's a good return for us. And I'll have about 10 grand and and cost to fix it up. So that, that to me in development, if I, if I were to say that to some people, they'd go, well, how do I know that's good or bad? Or how do I know? Well, we're forcing some appreciation. So that does our marketing, does our, our, the spread cover what we have in improvements and survey costs and things like that. But I'm just using a surveyor for that. He's going to go mark what I drew on map, right? And he's our land ID. He's going to put his corner post in. Then my tractor guy is going to come out. He's going to put the driveways in and, and that's, it's kind of it's really basic in that aspect, and I, I think that you start with with something small. You say, okay, hey, I've got this ten acre, and it's got good road frontage. Well, let's see what the surveyor says if I split it in half. Hey, can I split this into two fives? You magically forced quite a bit of appreciation by doing that, and then you make sure you have two driveways, and so now you have accomplished your first subdivide, right? You have done a first little development. You see that happen, then you go, okay, what's next? Well, if I bought this twenty acre. And I cut it into four fives. Am I still doing a simple subdivide or do I need to get it platted? I call that same surveyor in that same area and say, hey, do we need to plat this or do we not? And he says, well, no, the state is the same as the other ones. It's, we can just do cutouts. And he says, okay, great. You buy the 40 acre and you do the same thing. And he says, yeah, we have to plat this one. Great. If we put a road in, what does that look like? Oh, you're probably going to need to get it approved. It's got to be like this. And so you start asking those questions. Some of that's to the county. It could be the road department. It could be the commissioner. You could talk to surveyors. Surveyors are really good about knowing a lot of stuff because that's what they do. But every market has a different thing. So if I said, hey, Jaron, you know, you want to cut this tr- this 10 acre into four tracks in Oklahoma, all you have to do is a survey because it's going to four tracks. Their, their law require, allows you to go four tracks with just a survey. But if I did that in Texas and I went to two and a half acres, I may be required to plat it depending upon the county. And so every jurisdiction is going to have a little nuance and it's going to require a little bit more. So, you know, we, we've done some stuff in New York that they require you to get the health department involved. And you're like, what? This is just, it's a 40 acre. I'm cutting it into four tens. Yeah. You got to get the health department and the city needs to say it's okay too. And then the friends of this river wants to know if you're going to put up barricades to keep from watershed to get into the river. We're not changing anything. I'm putting in, I'm splitting it at the road and making a new survey. That's all I'm doing. Oh, well, the friends of the, so-and-so river think you're going to mess up the river in future development plans, you know, and you're just going, golly, this doesn't make sense. But, you know, again, it's finding a little project and and just trying it. You know, I, I know guys that did it in Arizona. A lot of guys, a lot of guys that we've kind of watched grow up. I say grow up as land investors. I, I use that. I think, oh, well, we're a baby land investor. That was in 2016 for me. And then I've gotten better and older and I've gotten them. Now I'm like in uncle mode as a, as a land investor, you know, and I watched, watched so many people they learn how to do a simple subdivide in, in Arizona and it goes from 
well, I just it made sure everything had access and I made it in four tracks with the survey. And then I sold it all and I made really good money on margin with uh, owner financing. You're like, yay, super simple. You tried it though. And now you're going to know, you're going to feel more confident the next time you talk to a surveyor, whether it's in Arizona or Texas, because you're going to say, you're going to say it just like this. You're going to say, hey, in Arizona, I was able to cut this into fours with just a survey. Can I do that in this county or not? And he's going to go, oh yeah, that's easy. We can just do that. This was going to cost you. And then now you became an expert in two counties. And then you're going to try it in another county. You're going to ask the question again. And then you're going to say, hey, this one says zone commercial or it says zone ag. Can I have this zone commercial? And you're going to call a county commissioner and go, oh, yeah, we're just going to do a meeting on Monday. Just send your surveyor up here and he'll do the zone request or just write it in. We'll vote for it while it's here. It's not going to be a big deal because we'll upzone it. And so you'll learn the easy ways to do it or they'll say, oh, no, that can't be done. And then you back away. So the summary is, is that it, they're just like small incremental increases in experience. Exactly it's right. not like you need to make this massive jump. You got to have these big old cojones and your stomach, you know, you can't eat for a month straight because you're taking this huge risk. <laughs> it's like these small little increases in, in bigger and bigger projects. It's, exactly right. So circling back to my question, where do you feel pain for an advisor in a deal? Uh, in in this whole world of subdivides, entitlements, development, et cetera, comes into play. Like I'm assuming at this stage where you're at, you're not going to be one who's going to like hire Mike Marshall for to come in on a deal. Well, stop you there because I would hi- I, I like Mike and I, I would work with Mike on a deal. Yeah, he's a great. I, guy. I would work with Mike on the right deal, but I also it, it, for some people. A lot of people don't want to give away equity. They're like, oh, equity is so expensive because they heard somebody say that somewhere on on some Instagram short, YouTube reel, whatever you want to call them. And sometimes equity is not a bad deal because it's not out of pocket. And then they have a vested interest in your success as well. And you know, I, I like Mike in, in the fact that if I were to probably go and say, hey, I've got this property. It's inside of city limits. I think we could change the zoning or do something. He would probably be my first call. Or if I were to buy a suite, um, like say an office building and I wanted to split it into suites and now I could sell each one of the suites and then own one free and clear and then get rid of having to worry about CapEx and make it condos. Some, he would be somebody to call because he has some experience in that. It's just not the experience I have. But that's where the paying the advisor for me is, is huge because there's a lot of experiences I don't have. And I understand that somebody that I trust that really has the experience because a lot of guys will tell you they do it all. But then when you ask them, they say, oh, yeah, we have clients that do that. They do big, big things. And I can point to a couple very well-known gurus that will tell you, oh, yeah, yeah, we do all this, we do all that. And then they're really paying somebody on the backside to get you the answers. And I, and I know this for facts. And it's a the idea is making sure the person knows what they're doing and then and they have a vested interest in you, and especially if you know their, their, their experience is there. And I, I have a couple people that are so far above where I'm at that I use, I, I pull on that lever when I need to. I don't wear them out, but if they're getting to something that I just don't know, I give them a call and say, hey, this is what I'm looking at. Oh yeah, this is what I did. You just go around this person this way and do this. That's super refreshing to hear, to be honest, because it solidifies kind of my default practice is to do something similar. Like if I'm in the middle of pursuing a deal that's in an uncharted territory for me, I just would rather bring people on I'd rather call the Mike Marshall partner with you guys, partner with the Clint Turners in the world. And just like, you know, if it, if the deal makes sense to bring on somebody who specializes in this particular subject matter, just bring him on as a partner, you know, share the pie 
and be off off to the sunset you know, together. Yeah. And sometimes it's not even if you've done like say a subdivide and then you're going something a little bit bigger, it may not need that you may need a partner or give them away. It may just be a question and they, and they you have a mutual respect for each other where you just answer the question. It's like, hey Justin, you know, I'm having this problem with this. And I go, Oh yeah. Instead of calling that surveyor, call this one because he's actually an engineering firm, just not a guy with the post that's got a stamp. And he they they have a team that will redraw that for you. And oh, okay, cool. You know, and sometimes that takes you just to the next step and gets you a little bit farther ahead. So again, my feedback is making sure that person that you're going to partner with or you're going to pay has the relevant experience because I've had it go the other way where I say, oh yeah, you've got this experience and they go, oh yeah, we can do it. But then they call the same person I'd already talked to and you're like, (laughs) ah, you didn't really have that. So I had a surveyor and I'll tell you this quick story because you got two minutes left with y'all, but we had a surveyor and he pitched us, he could walk something through this county and he actually had never done it there. And he was going off of Texas state statutes and not actual the county. And so when it came time to pay him, you know, our bill was like fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars $16,000 with him. And the surveyor engineer firm, he comes back and says, guys, I wasn't able to get this for you through the plat. I told you I could. And you asked point blank, you can walk it through this county. We want full turn. He goes, I'm sorry, your bill is only X. And he charged us for just drawing the survey and then wiped away everything else. It cost us five grand instead of sixteen. And that was, that was super, I, at the point going into that conversation, I was like, I'll never use this guy again. And he's local to me. And I would have you, I, somebody I would have used quite a bit. And then any of my real estate investing friends that are local that do development here, I was already blacklisting. I was like, Hey man, this guy, listen to this bullshit, but he redeemed himself. And I said, man, that was, that was an honorable thing to do. You know, I'd give him a shot in an area that he's actually done. He didn't have the relevant experience, even though he sold it like he did. All right, sir. Let's bring you on like once a quarter. I feel like every time. Yeah, man. Well, I don't want to overload your guest. No, come on, man. Well, Justin, it was an honor and privilege to have you on the show. I really do echo what Drew said. We should probably have you on like once a quarter. Anytime you want to come on, just let us know. You have an open door. Um, If people want to connect with you, where you want us to send them? My personal or casual Fridays, REI, uh, for the socials, if you want to go there, or my personal J underscore J underscore Sleva on Instagram, Facebook, you can get me there. I'm easy to get a hold of. Justin, any company you see my name attached to is my email address too. So casual Fridays, REI, Land Mule, Land Couple, all of them, Justin on the front. I love it. Thanks, Justin. See you, bud.